0: One of the most famous verses in all the Psalms, it says, Be still and know that I am God. That Psalm has been so impactful on my life, it's actually the only portion of Scripture written anywhere on our building. It's right out in the atrium as you enter our facility. And the reason why it's had so much of an impact on my life is because as a little boy, and this is probably familiar to your life, I had this intense desire to know God. And I learned later from the book of Ecclesiastes that that comes from God, that that we're not just flesh, we're not just, you know, eyes and ears and, you know, $2.99 worth of flesh, but that God put eternity within our hearts. There's a curiosity, there's a longing to know the God who created us. And so as a little boy, I would look at the sky and the stars and I would wonder, how did it all get here and who is God? The denomination I was raised in and... And my parents, we didn't talk much about God. We had rituals and holy days and holidays, but I never knew God could be known. 21 years of age, I'm on a college campus, and I run into a guy who starts to tell me about the Bible, starts to tell me about a God who loves me, starts to tell me about a God who could be known, how Jesus died for my sins, and that I was a lost sinner, and No matter how many good works I would do in life, I would never attain to righteousness, but Jesus had done that on a cross. So on a Friday night at a university, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was radically saved. That Sunday, I was going to attend my first service at a born-again church. So Saturday night, and some of you may want went through this last night, I tossed and turned. Was it going to be weird? What were they going to do? What would it be like? So I got there, and guess what? It wasn't really that weird. Uh, I just remember the music, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is what it should have been like all along. If God was real, I think this is what the music would look like. I still remember the message. The pastor talked about angels. This is 35 years ago. It wasn't relevant to my life, anything I was going through, but I thought, cool, angels. Yeah, I, I have heard about angels. I like to know about angels. But what really inspired me was the end of the service. After it was all over, people actually hung around. The church I grew up in, it was like everybody out. People hung around for about an hour. I made my way back to a table where they had books, music, and tapes. And that's when it hit me. God can be known. And I realized that I had misplaced desires. All my life, I had a curiosity to know. Uh, I got into karate at one time and became a Bruce Lee follower became a fanatic, I would drag people to bad neighborhoods, watch Bruce Lee movies, had to buy all the magazines, same with boxing, same with sports, and I realized at that time this was all misplaced, that the capacity in me was to know God, so this was my practice for the first year. I would go to service, and I would go back to that table, and I would either buy music, teaching tapes, or books about the Bible, and I started to learn about God. I started to read the Bible, and I would see over and over again that God spoke. He spoke to Abraham, spoke to Moses, spoke to Elijah, spoke to the prophets. And then I get to the New Testament, and Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And then Hebrews says that God, who spoke to the fathers through the prophets, in these last days, speaks through his son. God speaks to everyone. And I was learning in that first year, and I would say by the end of the first year, I knew a lot about God. But I can't say that I knew God. 35 years later, I can stand here and say, I know God. Now, I say it in all humility. Please don't misunderstand. I am not an insider with God any more than you can be, right? When I say I know God, it's like I have a thimble of seawater next to a vast ocean. Like Paul, one of the great saints who wrote a third of the New Testament said, we see through a glass dimly, but one day we're going to see him face to face. As the years have played out, I've gotten to know God, his characteristics, what he's like. Everybody can know God. I mentioned Job last week. I think he's, he's a, a great test study for all of us. We all know Job's calamity. He lost his children, his business, everything. His wife told him to curse God and die. His friend said, look, Job, come clean. There's got to be sin in your life. Confess, and God will restore. The Man's got boils all over himself. And over and over again, if you read the book of Job, Job says, look, I've looked at my life. I've looked for sin. And he begins to defend himself. Chapter 1, verse 8 said he was the most righteous man in the land. He feared God and shunned evil. We find out later that he was sexually pure, that he made a covenant with his eyes, that he wouldn't look upon another woman. He was a leader at the gates. That meant he he believed in justice and compassion. He had been benevolent to those who were poor. Job was upstanding in almost every way. And then he begins to question God. He begins to curse the day he was born. He begins to wonder why this all has come upon him. Let me read you some of what Job says. This is a believer, not a skeptic. He said, I cried out concerning wrong, and I'm not heard. If I cry out, there's no justice. He, personal pronoun, speaking of God, has fenced up my way so I cannot pass. He has stripped me of glory. He breaks me down on every side. He has kindled his wrath. God, you are the cause of all this, Job said. And Job just keeps railing and railing about his condition. And he says, oh, that my words were written in a book. They are, you're reading it today. That they were inscribed with an iron pen. And in all his skepticism, Job says this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he will stand on the earth in the last day. And after my skin is destroyed, after I die, I know this, Job said, in my flesh I shall see God. Finally, God answers Job in the whirlwind. He says, Job Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And and God takes Job through this whole aspect of creation, showing that he is God, and Job's finite, and Job's just sitting there taking it all. And finally, at the end, Job says this, I know now you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen and let me speak, and I will question you. Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job said, now I know God. I know him in totality. I know him in all his fullness. And this is the way life is, that that we have this ability to know God. How do we know God? Well, number one, through the intellect. Now, people rail against that and say, oh my gosh, that, that's going to lead to a dry Christianity, head knowledge, etc., cetera, et cetera, Do you realize God gave you all a brain? The brain is the hardware. The spirit is the software. We're told to have the mind of Christ. We're told to love God with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our minds. I know my wife, I know her intellectually, I know her heart, and I know her through experience. But there is a part that is the intellect. Another way we know God is through the journey of life. Job is a great example. The people we meet bring us closer to God. We can see God in others. And then there are the spiritual disciplines. Fasting, prayer, solitude. But Psalm 46 brings us into another dimension. Psalm 46, 47, and 8 are a trilogy of victory psalms for Israel's defeat of the superpower that lived above them, the Assyrian army. I want to give you a little backdrop of the psalm. The Syrians had infiltrated Samaria, the ten tribes to the north of Israel and Jerusalem. And they now had surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they were knocking on the door of the gates. They were going to besiege Jerusalem. Sennacherib is the head of the Assyrian army. You can read this in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And he gives a letter to Hezekiah, a godly king, that the next day they're gonna invade and destroy Jerusalem. Hezekiah takes the letter into the temple. He says, Lord, you got mail. You gotta do something about this. That night, an angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian army. 183,000 Assyrians were killed. And it was a great day of victory. After that victory, this is the song that they sung. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with trembling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you realize what they were saying? Metaphorically, they were saying, You know, we were surrounded by great armies. It was like the waters. And it was like the mountains were going to go into the sea. What they were saying is the unthinkable was about to happen. That God's promise of a people and a land would be lost. And now God is our refuge. He's our strength in times of trouble. And there is a river that makes glad the cities of God. They go on to say the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just as the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. And then it says, Be still and know that I am God. What a God story. God victorious for Israel. Now, the psalm is very interesting because the first nine verses are all in the third person. This is what God has done. And then God enters the psalm in the first person Be still and know that I am God. What does it mean to be still? The Hebrew means to take your hands off, to drop your guard, literally to let go. Do you ever see that bumper sticker, let go and let God? It means to take a step back, to quiet, to watch. Moses had to do this when he was at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's armies coming. He had to put the rod of God in the water and then just take his hands off and stand back and watch the waters part. This verse, be still and know that I am God, is so pregnant with application for you and me today. I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble and I'm surrounded by great waters, I'm a fixer. I'm a control freak. Just, I'll admit it this morning. I want to get in there. I want to fix things. I want to make things right in my life, in my family. When I see a bumper sticker like, let go and let God, that speaks of passivity to me. You know, I'm more like, okay, God, let me get in here with you. Let's, let's work this thing out. The reason it's important this morning is there's a whole lot of things besieging us. Not only as a nation and a people, as believers, but there are things besieging you and me that we have to stand back and say, i got to take my hands off the wheel. I can't fix this. I can't figure it out. I can't finesse it. There are times where I just have to be still And know that he's God. And that he will be exalted. And you know what happens when I'm still? I begin to trust God again. I begin to rest. And when I trust God, things happen and I have God's stories to tell. Yesterday I was at an all-day college seminar at the University of Penn. They brought professors from Cambridge and Stanford. And they were talking about Greece and Rome and how... That applies to who we are today as a nation, and as I went through the course, I just I was amazed how Christianity has undergirded that for 2,000 years. Not only did Christianity affect Greece and Rome, but it has affected who we are as a nation. And I thought all this happened because 120 people got in an upper room, and they were still and quiet before God. They didn't go out and try and change the world. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And then like dynamite, God started a revolution. Martin Luther read Psalm 46 at the darkest days of the Reformation. He was being declared a heretic. They were going to burn him at the stake. He looked at Psalm 46 and he wrote the great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark in times of trouble. Luther went on to say that we sing this psalm of praise to God because he is with us, powerfully and miraculously preserving and defending his church and his word against every fanatical power of the devil, the will, flesh, and sin. What does it mean to be still and know that he is God? What what did Luther gain from this? Again, it's not passivity. It means when we quiet ourselves, we stand in the values that we've been convicted of. We understand who we are. We understand who God is. We understand the Ten Commandments and what life is. In Ephesians, Paul said that we put on the helmet of salvation, the blessed, you know, all these. Armor, you know, the armor of God. And then we stand in the evil day. It means to quiet ourselves and to remember who God is and all that he can do. And it builds trust again that all these things are possible. Be still and know that I am God. Now, here's the million dollar question today. Is it possible to be still and quiet in our Red Bull caffeine you know, daily grind that is 2016? With cell phones and smartphones and computers and information from around the world flooding in, can we still be quiet and know that he is God? Sherry Turkle has written a groundbreaking book called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. She has studied... uh, conversation and information, how it affects human beings for the past 35 years, and she bases her whole book on Henry David Thoreau, who went to a cabin in Walden Pond, Concord, Massachusetts, and his goal was to, live, to learn to live more deliberately among the noise of daily life. And he had three chairs, as furniture in his living room. The first chair was the chair of solitude. Thoreau believed that when you were alone with yourself, you became more confident of who you were. Think about that in a connected age. He said when you're alone with yourself, when you're comfortable with yourself, you know who you are. Therefore, you can relate to others in a more powerful way. Remember a couple of weeks ago I asked you if, if you talk to yourself, and you should. You know, they're going to come with a jacket. I go to movies by myself. I go to ball games by myself. I sit in parks by myself. Thoreau said, when you have solitude and you're comfortable with yourself, you'll be a better friend. It's the second chair. You'll have something to offer to someone. And self-reflection and friendship will give you feedback on your own life. And, of course, the third chair was how we relate to society. I want to talk about this chair. I want to talk about solitude. The Bible has a lot to say about solitude. But before we talk about it, we have to ask ourselves the question is it still possible? And I'm not sure. Now, I'm 53 years old. I'm probably going to make it to the finish line because of the way I was raised. I'm concerned with people that are younger than me, connected 24 7. They did an experiment recently where they asked people to sit in a room quietly, no books, no phones, 15 minutes. They said, look, if you get bored, if you get restless, there's a little shocking device here where you can shock yourself. People were like, no way, we're not going to shock ourselves, are you kidding? Me? Six minutes in, six minutes in, every person in the study, not only began shocking themselves, but shocking themselves to the end. Couldn't sit still. You ever stop at a stop sign, look over, see what everybody's doing in other cars? All texting. Supermarket long lines? All texting. You know, I go out with guy friends, you know, ball game, movie, we're sitting in a pizza place, everybody's on the phone, everybody's connected. And that's when we're together. And yet the Bible says there's something about solitude. My life verse is Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night and you will have great success. Psalm 1 says that uh, blessed is the man who meditates on God's word. He will be like a tree. Every season he'll experience growth and fruit. you know what meditation is? Stillness. Do you know how you meditate? By yourself. Now, when I say meditation, some alarms go off because of these, well, in my early years of preaching, I would have said knuckleheads. Um, Can't think of a better word. Yeah, so these knuckleheads (laughs) out on the internet, oh, meditation, your pastor must be in the Eastern mysticism. No, your pastor is biblical. I just read you two verses. Eastern meditation is where you sit alone and empty your mind, which is impossible, by the way. You get 50,000 thoughts a day, you're never going to empty your mind. Meditation, biblically, is to renew your mind, to fill your mind with the word of God, to be washed. So meditation is so important. Romans 12:1 says don't be conformed to this world, be transformed. Isn't that all of our goal? Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. David did this, Jesus did it, Paul did it, John the Baptist did it. Jesus said pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When you start prayer like that, you know the to-do list goes away. Oh my gosh. I remember who God is. He's he's the head of the host of heaven. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. This is the God that I serve. That only happens in quiet reflection, with your Bible open, remembering who God is. Psychologists tell us today that they're starting to understand that the best creative ideas actually come from solitude. Now this cuts against the grain of everything we've been told, right? Uh, We've been told that one of the reasons you shouldn't homeschool your kids is they need to be socialized, they need to be with other kids. I don't want to get into that argument. But here's what Turkle found out in her 35 years of study. She says, whereas screen activity for kids tends to rev them up, I don't know if you all knew that, you thought you were kind of getting some free time giving them that iPad, it tends to rev them up the concrete world of modeling clay, finger paints, building blocks slow them down. The physicality of these materials, the sticky thickness of clay, the hard solitude of blocks offers a real resistance that gives children time to think, use their imaginations, and to make up their own worlds. Psychologist Eric Erikson, a specialist in adolescent development, wrote that children thrive when they are given, listen, Time and stillness. Time and stillness. My wife had a rule. She was saying this uh, a few days ago. She had a rule with my kids. They had one hour a day on boxes. Teenagers said, what were boxes? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, TVs used to be a box, not a flat screen. Video games, um, TV, vid- anything on a screen, you had one hour a day. That's it. Now, what about adults? Same thing. You ever wonder why they're selling adult coloring books now? (laughs) Can you believe it? I mean, gosh, I wish I thought that up. Corporations talk about brainstorming. We're going to have a brainstorming session. Do You ever go to a brainstorming session? They're terrible most of the time. And the only good ideas are coming from people who, in solitude, thought of these good ideas, and then there is help coming together. Mozart said, when I am, as it were, completely myself, entirely alone, and of good cheer, whether in a coach or crossing a street, that's when my ideas flow. Where do we get our best ideas? The proverbial shower, right? Oh my gosh, yeah, I had this great song came to me in the shower, and now I forgot it. Thomas Mann said, solitude gives birth to the originality in us. And Picasso said, without great solitude, no serious work is possible. Years ago, Susan Cain had a TED Talk that went viral. She later wrote a book about it called Quiet, The Power of Introverts. And in her book, she talked about how we always look at extroverts, the CEO types Lee Iacocca, Donald Trump, people like this. And we think, oh my gosh, extroverts rule the world. Everybody should be an extrovert. And then she did countless studies and she found out that most accomplished people are actually introverts. And even though the extroverts that we see and love, most of them have to do their work as an introvert to be extroverted. Like a comedian spends countless hours coming up with a stand-up routine. Uh, this was kind of groundbreaking in my life because I look at myself as an extrovert, but I realized I spend 20 hours alone a week preparing messages with just me and God. And it's been the source of my strength for 20-some years. Now, if being still and quiet helps us to know God, if in the stillness we remember that he is God and he can defeat great armies, how do we do it? How do we make this practical? Um, I think Richard Foster is the expert in this area, or he started it in his book Celebration of Discipline," and we don't like we don't like discipline and spirituality we We think they're kind of like an oxymoron, but uh, almost everything he's going to talk about for us to grow spiritually is a discipline. Foster says. To really grow spiritually, we have to get rid of muchness. Noise, hurry, the busyness of life. He recommends setting a time. Now this rails against us, right? We're saved by grace. Grace changes everything. I don't want somebody to tell me a time I've got to be with God. I can be with God any time anytime I want. You're right. But you set a time to grow grocery shopping. You set a time to work out. You set a time for almost everything else. Uh, he recommends a place, a specific place. My wife has a tea room that she really communes with God in. And then a form, forum. Or, you know, reading the Bible, certainly. Are you reading great books? Listening to music? So forth and so on. For my 35 years of knowing God, this is going to shock you. One of the great comforts of my soul and the stillness of my life has been music you know probably people think oh pastor Bob's intellectual he reads you know that's that's his vein with God you'd be surprised how much music has meant to me um, our arts team my kids my wife you know they'll find great music and when they find it I'm one of these people that locks on to it you ever do that So I don't know how to put great playlists together, but what I do is I lay in bed and I just repeat a song over and over and over again. We're going to play a song now by Audrey Assad, one of the great psalmists of our day. And I want you to sit back and listen to the words of this song. She says, let it rise into a shout and into a cry. She says, I'm restless, I'm restless, till I rest in you. Let me rest in you, I'm restless, so restless, till I rest in you. So we're going to listen to this psalm, and I want you to reflect on the quality of your soul. And we're going to be quiet. Don't be tempted to look at your phone or some blue screen. We have no shocking device for you this morning. Let's be still and let's listen to God.
1: You dwell in songs that we are singing Rising to the heavens Rising to your heart, your heart, our praises, filling up the spaces in between our frailty and everything.
0: First, chair that's usually the first thing I experience a restlessness. God, what is this? What Lord, you said you would fill that void, and then I realize I haven't been resting in Him. I realize that that void is being filled once again with all external material things, and my soul begins to shrink. This is why you need to be still and quiet before God, because you are spirit, soul, and body. And the soul is what's driving you. The soul is craving to be with God. The soul longs for communion. Dallas Willard said, you are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means you are not meant to be self-sufficient. That's why we came to Christ. What is running your life at any given time is your soul. Not external circumstances, not your thoughts, instincts, or feelings, but your soul. The soul is the aspect of your being that connects, integrates, and enlivens everything on in various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of all human beings. And no one modeled the soul better than Jesus Now, Jesus was busy. Jesus had a lot of ministry to do. There were days where they had to push him out into the sea. The crowds were there. Think of the demands he must have had that we don't even see in the Bible. They brought children to him, the elderly, the deaf. There were no hospitals in that day. Jesus had more ministry to do. It was endless. It was 24-7, yet he modeled a perfect soul. He found time to pray with the Father early in the day. He had a circle of men, 12 that he lived life with, and then he had Lazarus, Mary, and Martha of Bethany. He had a circle of friends. He made it his practice to be in the synagogue every Saturday, obviously filled with the scriptures, as he quoted when the devil tempted him. He took long walks, one of the advantages of that day, in the places they had to travel. He partied with the non-religious. How cool was that? Something about being with lost people Fueled his soul and should ours. He attended family gatherings, a wedding at Cana, where his mother asked him to turn water in the wine. The one thing Jesus knew is the soul craves rest. Or it gets very restless. And when we're restless, we fill in with other things. It happened to Israel. You remember when God brought them out, uh, he, you know, in a miraculous way gave them manna. Moses prayed, and God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Manna from heaven every day. It'll be sufficient for you. It's enough. And in the beginning, it was a miracle. It was wonderful. It was God's provision. But after a while, they said, what is it? What is this manna? We're tired of manna. We want leeks and garlic. We want to go back to Egypt. And we get that way in our faith, right? Come to church. Oh, I love the music. I love the pre- I love everything about this place. 15 years later, like, what is this? What are they doing? Why are they doing? We get restless. And they said, We want meat. And God said, You're going to get meat. It's going to come out of your nostrils and your ears. And He gave them quail. And the psalmist wrote about it in Psalm 78. It says, because they had no faith in God and didn't trust his saving power. Though he had opened the doors of heaven, he had rained upon them manna to eat. The grain of heaven was given them. Mortals, then the bread of mortals ate the bread of angels. He sent them food enough. But they weren't satisfied. And they all died at Kibroth Havatah, the graves of lusts. When you're a believer and God has filled your soul, there is a satisfaction. There is a contentment that Paul talked about. Restlessness seems to cease. One day, Jesus, on a very busy day, remember he was teaching and preaching, uh, got in a boat with the twelve and he says, we're going to go to the other side. And he's going to the other side and he's sleeping, Rest. And there's a tumultuous storm. And the disciples can't believe it. Now, these are seasoned fishermen. They've fished on this Sea of Galilee all their life. And they're upset that Jesus is sleeping. Right? And we do the same thing. We get get mad at people who find rest. And they wake them up and say, Master, don't you care about us? You're not going to do anything. And remember what Jesus says? Peace be still. He quiets everything. Down. in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness, and everything you're restless about will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Find your refuge in God. Find what God wants you to do in life. I believe what you're seeking is who you are. Whatever you're seeking in life, look around, look at people, look at your own life. Whatever you're seeking, that's who you are. Jesus said, if you're seeking first the kingdom, you are a satisfied soul. And you might ask, well, why does God need to be sought? Why do we need to be quiet? Why do we have to hear his voice? Why doesn't God just make himself more known? Why is there this hiddenness of God? And the answer really is because God never imposes his will. Rich young ruler comes and he says, uh, How do I get to heaven? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've done all of them. And he said, well, do this one thing, sell everything you have, and you can follow me, you can be my 13th disciple. And the guy said, no thanks. Jesus didn't chase him down. Uh, I like to think after the resurrection, Jesus rises from the dead, and he meets with his 12. I like to think of what I would have done. I would have instantly gone to Pilate, Freaked him out a little. would one of them to have a heart attack. Sit down and say, uh, let's talk about what is this truth thing for a little bit. Right? That's not what he does. He does not impose his will on us. He wants us to seek him and to find him when we seek him with all our heart. And where we seek him is in solitude. And then there's the beauty of Acts chapter 2. Small communities. But we have nothing to offer small communities if we haven't been with God. And then we can affect the world. I'm going to ask Joe Fisher to play a musical song, no words. And I want you to examine the condition of your soul. Are you restless this morning? Are you content in God? Is this provision sufficient for you, or is there something you're trying to attain? Is there something you're seeking other than him? Again, no cell phones, no electronic devices. We don't like quiet because we don't practice it. Let's quiet ourselves in the stillness that God has provided us. You know, already in my spirit, there's a calmness, and I begin to reflect, and I know it's awkward in a room like this, but God begins to speak. We just wanted to give you a taste this morning, a little itsy-bitsy taste of what it means to be still and to know that he's God, and it makes all the difference. Because when you come out of that stillness, the trouble's still there. The battle's still raging, but you found a refuge within that trouble. The one who would cover you with his wings. It's a beautiful place to be. I want to encourage you. In the bookstore, we have a rack on books about spiritual disciplines and ways to do some of this stuff. Whether it's music or it's books or the Bible, uh, whatever type of aloneness you have, it'll lift your spirits and it'll lift your soul. So let's stand together. And now we'll all participate as we sing this final song, and then I'll have closing comments.